Good morning. Before we dive in this morning, I want to say once again, thank you to all of those of you who are part of Serve Day last week. Uh, anytime we get to communicate the love of God to people in tangible ways like that, I just think it goes a long way in solidifying for them that, hey, we're not after something from them, right? We want something for them and we want them to know that we care about them. Tell them people all the time, you know, if, if New Anthem for some reason would shut its doors, I want the community to say, man, we miss those people. They were for us. More importantly, I want them to say that God is for them. I want them to realize that God loves them and cares for them. And the, and the way we can do that is by showing them that we'll serve them in whatever way we can do. You know, the uh, old phrase, people don't know, care what you know until they know that you care right? And so we get to show them that we care for them. So that's a really big deal. So really to all of you who made that possible, thank you very much. It's fantastic. If you're joining us today, brand new with us, thank you again for being here. I know there's a lot of things you can do on a Sunday. I'm glad you chose to spend your time with us. We're kind of in the last half of a sermon series called The Movement, and we've been looking at a book in your Bible called Acts, A-C-T-S, not A-X-E. If you're new to the whole Bible thing, that's okay. We've been in it for six Six weeks. I can sum up those entire six weeks, though, in one sentence, and that is every movement begins with a moment. Every movement begins with a moment. So what we've been doing is looking at the book of Acts, and we've been looking at moments and how they've created movement. And those movements have either pushed people closer to God, or they've actually had opportunity to pull people further away from God. And my challenge before all of us today has been to or, or these six weeks together has been to ask ourselves to look at moments in our lives. Say, are these moments pushing me closer to God? Or are they pulling me further away? My, my hope for each one of you is that you'll actually take steps closer to God. That's my plan for this entire series. That's my plan for you today is that you'll leave one step closer to God. So if you brought a Bible, I hope you did, go ahead and grab it. You can turn with me to that book of Acts. It's towards the back of your Bible. If you're using an app on your phone, something like that, that's totally fine. You're going to want to click to the uh, big number 15, chapter 15. That's Acts chapter 15 is where we're going to be this morning. While you're getting there, let me kind of set up where we're headed like this. I saw an interesting quiz online, and I, I feel like it's going to do a, a good job at preparing us for where we're going to go. It's, it's a short four-question quiz. Uh, professionals in, in business world, they use this to test your IQ. The goal is that if you, if you pass this, they'll see where they can place you in a higher position because this test is such kind of a, a big deal. According to the uh, consulting firm that administers this quiz, over 90% of people that take it fail. Four questions. Yet, they gave this to some preschoolers, and a lot of the preschoolers actually got at least one question right, whereas over 90% of professionals in the adult working world didn't get a single question right. So here it is. I, I think this is going to help us. Number one, how do you put a giraffe into a refrigerator? Here's the correct answer. You open the refrigerator, you put in the giraffe, and you close the door. This question tests whether you tend to do simple things in an overly complicated way. Number two, how do you put an elephant into a refrigerator? Here's the wrong answer. Open the refrigerator, you put the elephant in, you close the door. Correct answer. You open the refrigerator, you take the giraffe out, you put the elephant in, then you close the door. This tests your ability to think through the repercussions of your actions. Number three, the Lion King is hosting an animal conference. 
All the animals attend except one. Which animal does not attend? Correct answer. The elephant. He's in the refrigerator. Very good. This tests, <laughs> tests your memory. Uh, and even if you didn't get the first three right, there's one more question you have a chance to get right. Number four, there's a river you must cross, but it's inhabited by crocodiles. How do you cross it? Here's the correct answer. You swim across. All the crocodiles are attending the animal conference. This tests whether you learn quickly from your mistake. Here's why I bring this up, because you're probably wondering, what in the world does this have to do with the Bible or God or anything important in my life at all? And here's what it has to do, I'll tell you. We, as adult human beings, we tend to overcomplicate things. We tend to overanalyze things. We overengineer. We overthink almost everything we do. We like loopholes. We like workarounds. We like to try and make our life as easy and as simple as possible. We spend most of our waking hours doing just that, trying to figure out how can we make my life easier today. Kids, kids tend not to do that. They don't have the same reasoning capabilities that we do. They just tend to believe stuff. They don't overcomplicate it. They just do what they're told or do whatever they have to do. And I think that's why God says that you must have childlike faith, but that's a different sermon. But for today, my point is that even around this idea of what it means to follow Jesus, we as adults, human beings in general, we tend to overcomplicate it. We tend to over-engineer things and overthink things, and it's not a new problem. It's been going on for thousands of years. I can show you. Here we go. Acts 15, right in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And there you go. Overcomplicating things. You have to do this in order to be saved because here's what we know. Jesus, uh, shortly before he ascended into heaven, he gave his disciples some instructions. You can find those in Matthew 28. He says, go into all the world and make disciples. It's the great commission. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And then in Acts 1.8, which we already saw, Jesus says, hey, now you need to wait for the Holy Spirit, the helper to come descend upon you. That's going to give you the power in order to do this mission that I've told you to go make disciples. Nowhere does he say that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved, but overcomplication sets in. People start adding to the rules that Jesus laid out. He says, you have to, they say you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. But God never said that. Jesus didn't say that. Which Have you ever heard the, the story about a priest, a minister, and a rabbi? They want to see who's best at their job. And so each one goes into the woods. They find a bear. They try and convert it. The, uh, they all get together to debrief how they did. The priest begins with, well, I found a bear. I, I read to him the Holy Catechism. I sprinkled him with holy water. And next week is his first communion. The minister says, I found a bear by the stream. I preached God's holy word. He was so compelled that he was baptized right there. They look at the rabbi, and the rabbi is laying on a gurney in a body cast, and he says, looking back, maybe I shouldn't have started with circumcision, right? That's, that's funny, okay? I'll let you, some of you think about that for a while, because you didn't quite get that right away. But here's the deal. My point, God didn't tell the apostles circumcision was part of the plan for salvation, We already read in Acts chapter 10 how the Holy Spirit fell on people, the Gentiles, who were not circumcised. They were saved. In other words, the mark of salvation in your life is not about physical circumcision. It's about spiritual circumcision. 
Has the Holy Spirit convicted you of the sin in your life? Have you repented of that sin and began to trust and follow Jesus? Yet people aren't okay with that. They want something to show them they're saved. They start adding to the rules. Verse 2, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So the church gathers together. They say, all right, what do we do about this? Some people are teaching this. Is this right? Is this what we need to follow? Do you really have to be circumcised in order and following the law of Moses in order to be saved? Verse 6, the apostles and the elders all gather together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Simply means there was just a lot of yelling at one another. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, you've got all these rules. We weren't even able to keep all the rules. There were 613 laws that Jews had to follow. Circumcision was just one of them. 612 other laws that they had to follow. Peter's like, I don't know about you guys, but I never felt like I was following them all. I looked at my dad. I didn't feel like he was following them all. How many steps again was it that we could take on the Sabbath before we were working? I know bacon's out, but what about turkey bacon, right? I mean, that seems kind of clean. Can we eat turkey bacon? Is that kosher? How about men's rompers? Is that okay? Is that like, is that, is that forbidden fabric? Yes. Okay. Just for the record, that's a sin. Men's rompers are a sin. Just in case you were curious, sinful. But what's Peter getting at here. He's like, why are we overthinking this? We shouldn't project onto them the laws that we were raised by. It goes on, verse 11. This is huge. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. That's what saved us. It wasn't the rules. It wasn't the dietary restrictions. It wasn't the circumcisions. It was the grace of God. That's what saved us. We believe it for them just like we believe it for us. And all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Now, you might recall James is the half-brother of Jesus, so he's kind of a big deal within the church, very highly regarded. Look what he says, verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Might circle, star, underline, highlight, memorize, whatever you do for Scripture, that single verse. Whatever we do, we should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. Those are literally the words that govern this church. This is the single biggest statement of what we believe as a church aside from salvation. That's why we do church the way that we do. We do not want to make it difficult for those who are turning to God. So any obstacle we can eliminate, we will and we should. Because we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Even preferences for things that I really like. 
we might have to eliminate, or things that I'm comfortable with, we might have to eliminate. Those are the lenses that we use when we think about anything that we want to do as a church. So leadership, we all get together. We say, does this make it difficult for those who are going to turn to God? Those who are coming through our doors for the first time, maybe have never been to church, will this make it difficult for them to hear the Word of God? It's what we think about. It's what I think about in my sermon preparation, my preaching. I don't want to make it difficult for people unfamiliar with Christianity to turn to God because I decide to use terms they're not familiar with. It's what we think about when we gather together and what we, we don't want church to look like. We've got this picture in our mind that we don't want to make it difficult by being a church full of cliques that are nearly impossible to penetrate. We don't want to present this artificial facade of righteousness around our people that people feel like they have to live up to some certain standard in order to feel comfortable here, to be included. I don't want to make it difficult because I fear that churches all throughout the United States project this sanitized life that families walk hand in hand, big Bibles gleaming, speaking weird language like, God, you are so amazing and glorious, brother, this morn. Like, what? I mean, we... And, but churches all over the United States are projecting that, that you have to live up to this certain standard. I don't want people thinking, I'm not like that. I don't belong. My life is messed up. Wouldn't fit in with those people. No, 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 no. Anybody is welcome here. You can find your place in New Anthem. I don't want to make it difficult for guests drawn to our church because they've heard God is doing things here and He's at work, but then they get here and the parking lot's all jacked up and kids' ministry is a wreck and rooms are overcrowded because we don't have enough volunteers, which that's not our case, but yes, we could use more volunteers. Shameless plug, if you're not volunteering, you should be. Furthermore, I do not want to make it difficult for people turning to God because I mock or speak condescendingly about people on the outside of our church building. That's what turns some people off on church to begin with. I don't want to make it difficult for African Americans or people of other races to turn to God because we have no multicultural representation here in our church body or on our leadership. And to be Christian means you have to somehow capitulate to white culture. No, 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 no. Jesus wasn't white. Jesus wasn't American. Okay? Hope they didn't bring anybody's news crashing down. Okay? I don't want to make it difficult for people. I don't want to make it difficult for those who are struggling with same-sex attraction who are turning to God by stigmatizing that sin somehow is different than my own. No, no, no. It's not true. I don't want to make it difficult for Democrats or Republicans because how many of you all know Jesus wouldn't identify as either? My preaching right now. He's kingdom of God party, okay? He's got his guy and he's my guy, Okay. I don't want to make it difficult by mixing secondary political positions with the gospel message. I don't want to make it difficult for people. I don't want to make it difficult for K-State fans. <laughs> by reminding them, last 61 games of men basketball, they've lost 55 times. <laughs> Six and 55 is your record. Congratulations. But you catch my drift, right? There's no message that's that's compares to the gospel message we have a message that's life or death no secondary message no matter how important can get in our way it's the gospel so jesus loves you and he cares for you and he came to this earth to die for you and make a way for you to be reconciled to god 
That's the message. Let's keep reading. Verse 20. Instead of making it difficult, we should write to them, the Gentiles, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. What? Seems kind of like an odd list, doesn't it? Random. Very random. How do we get from 613 to don't have immoral sex and don't strangle animals? What, let's make, what about lying and murder and thievery? How about all of that? Should we, I mean, is that free game? Can we just run wild on that? No. James is simply saying, hey, let's put aside ceremonial Jewish law from God's moral law. But let's also remind them to be culturally sensitive within the two when they're around one another. That's what he's doing. He's reminding us, even us today, year 2017, the same thing. He's like, hey, God never changes. God never changes. So continue to observe the moral dimensions of the law, things like murder and thievery, sexual immorality, all those things the Bible tells us specifically to avoid. But then you can put aside the ceremonial civic Jewish laws if you're not Jewish. But if you're around people who are, then, then try and be culturally sensitive with them and to them until you're apart again. That being said, let me go back to the idea I started with and say that our natural bent, our, our natural tendency is to drift, to drift away from these things, this singular gospel message, this idea that we're not going to make it difficult. We tend to drift away. Andy Stanley talks a lot about this, his book, Deep and Why. There's several drifts that the church tends to fall into, and, and even the early church tended to drift away from this. And every Christian, every church faces these drifts. I want to share some of these with you this morning, because if we're truly going to be a church that doesn't make it difficult to those who are turning to Jesus And that's the foundational text of how this church was established. So we need to be aware of these drifts. You might want to jot these down if you're taking notes. Number one, the drift from a passion for outsiders to pacifying insiders. It's a drift that we need to be aware of. That we have a passion for outsiders instead of pacifying insiders. Every church, though, tends to do this when you first get started. You're hyper-focused on reaching those on the outside. You have to be, though, just to survive. You need people coming in, but once you get established, it's pretty easy to start thinking about ourselves. What do we need? What about us? How do I get fed? We start to drift, and this is especially hard for me and for leadership because we want to be liked. We want you to come back and we want you to think that, that we're doing a good job. We want to make you happy. Plus, it's not the people on the outside who are writing emails or making phone calls to complain. How many of y'all know that? They ain't ever been here. They ain't complaining about anything. So it's easy for us to want to think about re-engineering this whole thing to make you happy or to please you or even to please me. If I like something, one be comfortable with something, but we ought not make it hard for those who are turning to God. So we have to constantly be asking the question, does this make it difficult for people who have never been here? It's sad to go in to churches that are just stuck in old tradition. Groups of people have been around and together and sitting in the same pew since the Revolutionary War, right? I mean, they're like, average age is 115 and you're 40 years old. You're in the youth group. That's that's sad because they care more about their traditions than they care about their grandchildren. 
And it's happening all over the world. And you think, man, if the 1920s came back, these people would be ready, but it's not coming back. And they don't change, even though they know they should and they can see that they're not reaching the next generation. It's why a thousand churches are going to close across America just this year. Because people aren't ready to make the difficult decision of what does it mean to not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. They lost their first love, which Revelation 2 talks about, which is a passion for outsiders. It's why they were first established. It's why you'll always hear me say, we're making decisions for people we've never met yet. Our job is to reach people and then figure out how we can disciple you and and help you grow in your faith. Yes and amen to that. But our primary and first love is to reach the outside, which God has called us to do. Here's another dangerous drift. The drift from grace to law. The drift from grace to law. You can see around this text that the ones calling out for circumcision, they were the ones saved by grace. And now they're trying to institute a law. We read that. They believed they were saved by putting their faith in Christ and His resurrection, but then they started to drift back to, towards the rules. Works-based relationship with God. You got to do this, you can't do that. You got to do this, can't do that. And that's what always happens. We constantly drift from grace to law because, because grace is hard. To understand that you were saved by grace of nothing on your own accord, it's much easier to say, look at all I've done. I'm doing X, Y, and Z. And so we drift from grace to law. Now, our list is different. Circumcision probably is not on our list, but there are things that we say you have to do these things in order to be right with God. In order to be a good Christian, you got to show that. So, they're never bad things. <clears throat> the things on our list, are you involved in ministry? Are you volunteering? Are you doing a quiet time? Are you in a small group? How many, how many people have you shared Christ with? These are the things on your list. Do you have a good family? How much do you tithe? All good things, but these become the measure of our spiritual lives when we measure other people, we start evaluating on, on whether or not they're living up to our standards and we make it difficult for people who are turning to God. I'll give you a little bit of an example of this. Have you ever been just incredibly lost? Like no idea how to get back to where you started from. My family and I, every year we go to a, a place in Missouri called Stockton. We stay at a cabin. We go to the lake. And uh, my brother-in-law, a couple of years ago, got incredibly lost. We got up early one morning to go fishing. And as we got out, we realized, hey, man, it's incredibly foggy out here. I don't know, but we didn't let that stop us. When you have a chance to catch some walleye, you go. It doesn't matter what the weather is happening. You go and you fish. And so we got out there and we started fishing and we realized... We don't know how to get back. It's foggy. We can't see any of the natural landmarks that we're used to seeing. I'm not a Navy midshipman. He was never in the Navy. I have no idea what that circular compass spinning around thing is or how to read it. I just assumed that was like a bobblehead that you have in your car that just looked. So we have no idea how to get back. What do we do? Is maritime law in effect out here? Like if we get in trouble, do I kill Zeb and eat him or what? Like I... I'm scared, okay? I don't know what to do or how to get back. What is protocol? Well, here's the thing. Sometimes people come into a church, in our church, and they're lost. They've never been to church before. They've never heard the gospel message. They just 
They just have heard something. They maybe were tricked by a friend to come, whatever it is, but they are lost. And if we pretend and present that the essence of Christianity is a bunch of rules to maintain, then we make it hard. We're not giving them a path that they can follow to get back to God. So let me say this the easiest way that I can. The gospel is that you are purified the moment that you put your faith in Christ. It's not about what you can do, but what He has done. Jesus' last words on the cross were, it is finished. Not go and fix yourself. And then come talk to me. No matter how lost you are, it's as finished for you as it is for anyone else. It's not, living up, it's not about living up to some moral standard. It's about trusting in Jesus. That's the message. Now, don't get me wrong. God, God does have some moral laws that you are supposed to keep. I already talked about that. The Bible specifically outlines what those are for you. But if that's all you're focused on, it's going to cause you to drift from grace to law and number three, the drift from a focus on internal transformation to external conformity. Whereas when you're saved, it's about how am I changing my heart? How am I changing my attitude? What things do I need to accomplish inside of me? And we drift to external conformity where we look around, we see all the people, we think that we need to do whatever it is that they're doing in order to fit in. Jesus said the essence of the law, the things that you're supposed to doing, be doing, it's in order to make you love God more and love people more. That's the point of the law. How do you love God more? How do you love people more? Whereas in most situations, external conformity is all about, hey, what can I do to fit in? Because I want to be uh, found acceptable within this group of people. And places that lose focus on the gospel, they replace a focus on inward transformation with an emphasis on external conformity. And when that happens, a whole host of things become spiritual laws that were never intended to be spiritual laws. I can give you a few examples of these. In their day, it was circumcision. But uh, let me give you some, some laws that happen within church all across the world today. How about alcohol? There are those who say, never okay, can't have it, can't see it, anything. Bible speaks very negatively about alcohol, which it does. And it talks about avoiding the dangers of alcohol. The world tells you it's dangerous. There was a New York Times article I just read this week that one out of six people who drink have a serious alcohol problem. So one out of six people who touch it and become addicted, which leads to all kinds of other different disasters. One in ten kids in the United States will grow up in a home that is abused by alcohol. A hundred and thousand people will die this year because of alcohol use. I would commend you for not drinking alcohol if that's what the decision that you choose to make, because it's very it can be very bad and and lead to horrible things. But the Bible doesn't strictly forbid it because there's others that say just because something is abused doesn't mean we should get out rid of it totally. Sex is abused. Do we get rid of it? Amen, somebody. <laughs> Got to be used in the right context. Marriage. Words are abused. Do we stop talking? No. Food 
is abused. You want to talk about deaths last year, 100,000 deaths related to alcohol, 300,000 deaths related to obesity. Nobody's talking about getting rid of dessert. If they are, they're crazy, okay? But it's abused. Do we, do we quit eating sugar? Even though the Bible warns us that alcohol can be abused, we clearly see people in the New Testament drinking fermented wine, Jesus being one of them. Uh, Paul prescribes it for Timothy. So there are all good arguments on both sides of the argument, but rather leave this as an issue of conscience. Some churches pick a side, they make it law. If you're going to be a member of this church, you got to sign this covenant that you can never drink alcohol. But it seems to me that we ought to leave this as a matter of conscience, an internal transformation versus an external conformity. They told the Gentiles, hey, don't throw off everything and and throw things into the face. You know, don't go to a Jew and start eating pork in front of them. Well, if you know somebody that's struggling with this, then you should make the same decision. For a time, you know, defer it. Same thing is true around this idea. What about Christian appearance? What about vocabulary? How you speak? How you dress? All these things. Some of you grew up in churches where Christians dressed in a certain way. No piercing, no tattoos. That's fine. But it's not a law. In fact, a while back, I was having a conversation with a guy who's talking about getting his daughter's ears pierced. He asked me what I thought. I said, bro, I ain't the person to talk to. My ears are pierced. Okay, I haven't worn earrings in years, but they're still pierced. I've got a, I, I had an eyebrow ring. Okay, my tongue was pierced. Some of you are like, how in the world are you a pastor? I don't know. Okay, but I was <laughs> pierced everywhere. I've, I have tattoos, okay? So, so I'm not the person to ask. I said, man, you and your wife, you need to figure that out. Pray over it and you, whatever you decide, I'm on board with. But there's, there's not a law prohibiting it in Scripture. Now, what about dress code? Because there are some things that we need to talk about in a dress. Because you should dress modestly, ladies specifically. You ain't making it any easier on the guys, okay? Dress modestly. Well, they shouldn't be staring at me, Pastor. Well, put them things away. They ain't going to stare at you, okay? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Be modest. Make it a little bit easier. How about profanity? What about the way you talk? Does that matter? The Bible does say that you shouldn't have uh, uh, unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but what is helpful for building each other up. So, yes, I would contend that you probably shouldn't be using profanity, but I don't want to judge somebody's heart on how they're using it. Maybe that was just normal language for them growing up. They don't understand it's wrong. We shouldn't make it difficult for those who are coming to God. I remember helping out in a church plant very early on. <clears throat> I preached one of my very first sermons. It was terrible, first of all. But an older gentleman came up to me, and he was rough. Okay? He was dressed rough, just physically looked rough. And he said, uh, he said to me, Pastor, I haven't been to church in 40 years. But that was one heck of a sermon. He didn't use that language, okay? We got earmuffs in here, so I understand. But now what am I going to say to that? Oh, man, you can't say that in church, right? No, he might not have come back for another 40 years. Instead, we don't make it difficult for those who are turning to God. We allow them to work through some of the things on their own, the internal transformation that God takes care of, not me. Not about my rules. So listen, here's the bottom line. The Bible needs to shape how we make every decision and how we think about everything. But for some people, you can't take the Bible further than what it says. You can't make things that are laws that that are external signs, whether you're right with God or not. 
That was never God's intention. It's through grace you are saved, and taking secondary things and making them precedence over the main thing is wrong. Wrong. So yes, let's have discussions about what we can and can't do or should and shouldn't do as Christians. But again, the Bible has to shape those conversations. And, and specifically, uh, how we live our lives. But we can never make external laws the main thing. The conversation about circumcision was a moment that led to a movement. Imagine how the movement would have been stifled if they said, yeah, everybody's got to be circumcised. Ain't a man coming to that church, right? But instead, they said, let's not make it difficult. And this moment that changed history allowed the gospel to spread all over the world. And what's sad is many churches will go through the same thing and they won't make it. Let that never be our story. Let's never make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Let's never make it difficult for the people in our community who have never heard the gospel message. Let's give them an opportunity to hear that firsthand. Let's always keep the main thing and the main thing and the main thing is God wants to know you. He wants to be in a relationship with you. He made a way for that to happen by coming to this earth, by sending His Son Jesus to come and pay a penalty for your sin. He wants to give you new life. He wants to change you internally. But the first thing is you've got to start with the main thing, by placing your trust in Jesus, by believing that He did what He said He would do. Which by dying on a cross, paid the penalty for your sin. But by raising from the dead, He can give you new life. When you place your faith in Jesus, you can have this new life. And then God will work those things out in your life that need to be worked out. It's never about work these things out and then you can come to me. No. God says, I'll give you new life. And then daily, I'm going to transform you into the image of my son. That's the story of all of our lives. Each one of us in, the, in this place. We started back here. And some of you want to make the other people back here get up here with you. And it took you years to get there. No, 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 no. We're not going to make it difficult for those who are turning to God. We're going to come alongside people. And we're going to love them. And we're going to disciple them. And we're going to gradually help them take their next steps. Amen, somebody. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for making a way for us to be in a relationship with you. God, we believe that you have our best interests in mind, that that you said you came to give us life and give it to the full, and that joy would mark our lives. Joy happens when we trust in you, and we understand that that we need to line ourselves up with how you designed the world to work, that you're not trying to keep anything from us. God, we love you and we thank you for that. With every head bowed, every eye closed still in here this morning, I just believe that there are those of you who haven't kept the main thing the main thing. That you've tried to push these laws and these external things on other people. I want to give you a chance to reflect on that and repent of that right now. But I also believe there are others of you who haven't ever trusted Christ as your Savior. That you haven't heard this gospel message. That's not about what you do. That's about what He did. 
And I want to give you a chance, as the Bible says, to confess and believe. Everybody in this room confessing together. In your heart, just saying, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry of the things I've tried to do to be saved. But I believe in this good news that Jesus paid my price. That because of that, His death, His burial, and His resurrection, I'm made new. Thank you for saving me. Help me live for you. Help me not make it difficult for those who are trying to turn to you. Help me allow other people to take their next steps together with me. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer of salvation, please come meet me at Connection Corner. I've got a a Bible and some, some other things that I want to give you to help you take your next steps. That being said, let's stand and sing.